Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world, especially in the time now of coronavirus. We are so glad to have somebody with us today who is expert on food insecurity and the impact that both the shutdowns and unemployment have had on so many uh, American families, particularly the impact it's had on hunger and food. Uh, Elaine Waxman is a senior fellow in the Income and Benefits Policy Center at the Urban Institute. She's been a mentor and a teacher to many of us at Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. She previously was uh, vice president at Feeding America, who we collaborate uh, closely with, and is now sheltering in place with her daughters in Chicago. Uh, Elaine, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. You must be feeling a lot of demands on your time and expertise as communities around the country try to navigate how to help so many Americans who are hungry and try to understand what the needs are going to be going forward. I was going to ask you before we get right into what's happening now with COVID-19, describe a little bit about how you characterized what hunger and food insecurity looked like in the U.S., let's say, just over the last few years before COVID-19? So that's an excellent question, because we had really been heading in a much better direction, albeit very slowly. You know, we had pretty um, previously unprecedented levels of food insecurity at the beginning of the Great Recession. And it took us about a decade to get back to the same level of food insecurity we had before that. And so it wasn't until 2018 that we actually were back to that sort of previous norm, if you will. That still meant we had about 37 million Americans who were food insecure, including about 15 million kids, which is still a a very concerning level. But we had definitely been heading in the right direction. And the conversations we were having are obviously very, very different than what we're talking about. And so, Elaine, uh, let's let's before we go any further, let's define what we mean by food insecurity, because I have found over many years of doing this work that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different folks. When you say food insecurity, what do you mean and what do you mean vis-a-vis what most people would think of as hunger? So broadly, we define food insecurity as sort of the uncertain and uh, uh, inconsistent access to a nutritionally adequate diet to sustain a healthy lifestyle. Um, And it's... um, most basic forms that might look like not uh, being able to buy more food if you run out, being worried that you aren't going to be able to buy more, um, not being able to afford a a balanced diet, um, maybe leaning heavily into a very limited variety of nutritionally limited but calorie-dense foods. At its more um, severe manifestations, it looks like skipping meals, Uh, reducing the size of your portions at the meals that you eat, or um, perhaps even going a whole day without eating. Um, Those last conditions are what people sometimes describe as hunger because that's more representation of the physical sensation of hunger. But what we've learned from research over the years is that if you live in a food insecure household, um, even at one with some of the less severe conditions, you are um, more likely to experience poor health outcomes. So those distinctions obviously matter very much in terms of the strategies we might pursue. Um, But the uh, idea that um, there's any good form of food insecurity has been dispelled long ago. And when you say we were, uh, before COVID-19, moving in the right direction in terms of food insecurity, why was that the case? What, What moved us in the right direction? So I think there's a few things that 
we can say um, that we know about food insecurity, at least under um, prior times. Um, unemployment is a big contributor to food insecurity. Typically for about every point that unemployment rises, we see about a half a point increase in food insecurity. Um, so poverty is also a big driver of food insecurity. And so those are things that had slowly begun to improve post-recession, although it happened much more slowly than I think many people anticipated. And so coming into this year, there were actually conversations about, well, why are so many people still on SNAP? And the tone was focused on whether there were um, in, inadequacies in individuals. Were they not working? Um, were they not working enough? Instead of focusing on the fact that um, the reality of the current economy coming into COVID was uh, a predominance of low-wage jobs with unstable uh, hours and intermittent unemployment or underemployment. And so that really was the norm and explains why we still had some persistently high food insecurity. Of course, nothing like what we're experiencing now. One of the things that I had been observing before COVID-19 was that, and I think this is consistent with what you were saying, but I want you to feel free to push back if it's not, is I had observed in a number of communities, a number of schools where Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign was very active in enrolling kids in school breakfast and making sure there were after-school meals programs, that type of thing. Uh, it seemed to me there were a number of communities where, uh, unfortunately, there was still poverty, significant poverty. Unfortunately, there was food insecurity with the many stresses, including health stresses that you described that go along with that, but that there was much less hunger, at least among the kids that we were serving, and that because more of their parents were employed and because I think the anti-hunger community as a whole had done a really good job of getting more kids enrolled in programs that they were eligible for and that existed for them, but maybe they hadn't been participating. It seemed like there was this kind of almost paradoxical situation of still poverty and food insecurity, but not the hunger that once went along with it. And so what it meant to me was exactly what I think I heard you just say, which is that it's still vitally important, but it could change the types of, you know, interventions or remedies that we that we focus on. Is that a fair summary? So I think you're right in that, you know, the anti-hunger community had done a really good job of leveraging a lot of tools in the toolbox to improve outcomes for a majority of families. So for example, we have been able to enroll many more families in school breakfast and the National School Lunch Program and doing a better job on summer, although we should come back to that because that's not a nut that we've ever actually cracked. But I think that we have to remember that those federal nutrition programs are our first line of defense for food insecurity. And we know from research that they reduce food insecurity. And so by investing in those, that's part of the reason that food insecurity had improved and that the depth of food insecurity, what you're referring to in terms of that, that experience of very low food security, had definitely lessened. And so we were doing a lot of the right things, but there were some gaps, right? So one of the persistent gaps has been that even though SNAP has been a, a great first line of defense for food insecurity, those benefits continue to be inadequate. And that's something that the anti-hunger community has actually been talking about for several years. We know from research that the average cost of a low-income meal is higher than the maximum SNAP 
per meal benefit in 99% of U.S. counties. And that was pre-COVID. What's that mean for families when their SNAP dollars don't go as far as they need to? Do they, do they Does it take them up to a certain point of the month? Does it um, leave them uh, having to rely on food banks or emergency food assistance? How does that play out? So that's a great question. Um, I think it uh, looks like a few different um, outcomes. One is that families have to rely on calorie dense and sometimes less nutritious food. And so people often talk about those food choices as if they are in fact uh, an an intentional choice uh, and preference. But you know, when you talk with low-income families and food insecure families, they will make it very clear that they understand that they are not necessarily eating in the way that they would most like for um, promoting their own health. But those are the choices that they face. You know, having done some interviews with food insecure teens, um, they're very articulate about what they see as the message when they walk into a grocery store and they look at a $4 box of strawberries and they look at multi-pack ramens and they'll tell you, you know, by those prices, you've told me how you want me to eat. I've heard them say that. And so I think that's really compelling because a lot of the coping mechanisms are not that people aren't eating, but that they're not eating as well as as they know they could and should. The other thing it looks like, absolutely, you mentioned, is not may, being able to make it through the month. And that's something that, you know, people who work with kids, for example, will often comment that they are aware of when SNAP benefits are running low because they see it in the shifts in um, children's behavior or or maybe the resources that children have in terms of bringing lunch to school or even in their responses to trying to save lunch items and take them home. So now COVID hits and families um, lose jobs. Uh, Kids who rely on meals at school uh, are not in school to get those meals. Uh, What's hunger and food insecurity look like if we were taking a snapshot right now? Yeah, that's a, it's been a very sobering landscape and obviously I'm sure Everyone has had a chance to see some of the long lines at at food banks, but we're just now getting some data from some early surveys in the first few weeks of the pandemic, and it's it's pretty concerning. At Urban, we fielded a survey at the very end of March, beginning of April, and found that one about one in four families with children under nineteen were identifying as food insecure. And that's a big jump, you know, even from where we were in the Great Recession. And particularly striking are the differences in family experience based on race and ethnicity. So while the rate for white families is about 17.6%, which is very high, it's about double that for Hispanic families and for Black families. So, so for Hispanic families, about just under 40%. And in those families that have a non-citizen member, it's over 40%, more like 43%. So those numbers, as you know very well from your long work in this field, are just really kind of jaw-dropping. Wow. And where do they turn now? Well, this is a good question. So I have to say that in terms of food insecurity response, you know, there's some, some heroes here that we can point to. Um, The school system um, and all of their partners have been pretty amazing in terms of very quickly converting to um, food that could be taken away and eaten at home once schools were closed. So, you know, that may look like grab and go meals. In some cases, it's home delivered food boxes or delivery at bus stops. But 
to have to literally re-engineer your entire school meal program to turn into something <laughs> completely different is 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 pretty astounding. And how how even or uneven is that around the country? Because uh, you know we've seen lots of variations of it, and I agree. It's to me, it's like uh, you know, it's just a remarkable, massive effort to kind of build this al- alternative universe of of school meals. But what, what, how have you observed the, its kind of consistency? I guess around the country. Yeah, I think that's a, a an open question and um, one we need to continue to monitor. You know, certainly, I think it's quite variable, um, even for um, some of the biggest cities. So most school districts have been doing something, but some are running many fewer locations. And, you know, if you're sheltering in place, if you um, now need to be at home with your kids, or you also maybe happen to be an essential worker and have to be, um, you know, away at work, having those small windows of time to pick up food in more limited locations, you know, not necessarily your neighborhood school is challenging. Now, there are other cities that have managed to sustain a really wide variety of locations and even do things like look at distributions, maybe late afternoon, um, not just a morning time where more families might be able to come. Um, but it's certainly not consistent. And, you know, certainly in some districts, we also saw a, a closure without uh, much of a food response at all. And while we can feel really good about um, much of that response, we're about, you know, we're on the cusp of summer and we've never cracked that nut in terms of how to reach all of the kids who are normally enrolled in free and reduced price lunch during the summertime. You know, I think typically it's, we've been only reaching about one in seven. We are quickly moving to some new ideas for that and we can talk about those, but we already know that summer is a, a higher food insecurity period for families with kids. Um, that our typical responses, even our new emergency responses, may or may not be sustained for the summer. And so I think this is a really important conversation to be having right now. Will Urban continue to do um, survey research? Are you doing it now? You talked about late March, early April, uh, identifying the one in four statistic across the board. Um, What should we anticipate seeing going forward? Yes. So we are fielding um, uh, another survey with the food insecurity questions included at the end of May coming up just uh, very soon um, and plan to repeat that again in mid-July. So that will give us um, some insight into, you know, how this is unfolding over time. I think even with some states opening up, we can anticipate that it's probably not getting better. And in some places it's going to get worse. Um, partly that's because, you know, some families at least have some small savings or, you know, maybe were able to retain their jobs, but just had reduced hours. And, you know, those things run out over time. The other thing that we've learned from prior recessions is that it takes people a long time to dig out. So let's just say we can wave the magic wand and, you know, we wake up uh, this summer with a completely open economy and, and back to normal, which we know is not going to be the case. But let's just say that's the case. You know, we started this conversation by talking about how many years it took us to get back to pre-recession levels from the from our last big downturn. So we can expect to see the same. And the, and the depth of food insecurity is going to be a real concern. One of the things we saw in the in the first survey was that those rates of very low food security, what we talked about in terms of skipping meals and and, and um, cutting portions, 
Um, those rates are really high, one in 10 overall for families with kids. But for um, Black families, it's about 18%. I, I don't recall ever seeing rates like that in prior times. And so just the sheer depth of digging families out um, is, is really troubling. And is there some reason to, this is kind of an uh, economics question, uh, and I don't have the answer, but um, uh, there's kind of a hopefulness embedded in the question, which is, is there some reason to think that because this uh, employment situation is different because it was related to this kind of natural disaster as opposed to a set of economic issues that the recovery could be quicker? I mean, 10 years, when you say it's going to take as long, that just, man, that just rocks me <laughs> to think it's going to take 10 years to get uh, everybody the food that they that they need and deserve. Um so I guess, I don't know, this is beyond my pay grade in terms of understanding where the economy is going, but is it possible that we could have a recovery that is not the kind of typical recovery from recession, but better than that? So I think it's possible, but I think it will be uneven. So I think there will be sectors where the hit on the economy due to the shutdowns was um, so significant that there will be businesses that won't recover and there won't be jobs to go back to. There will also be, uh, at least in the next year or maybe two, a need to re-engineer some of our workplaces so that you may be able to accommodate fewer people or um, you know, there may continue to be less demand. So I think it will take a while, even uh, if we you know, sort of flip the switch. It will also look very different depending on what your economy looked like going in. So we have to remember that some places were still experiencing persistent poverty. Some places may have been particularly hit depending on the mix of, of industries they had. And so what we are likely to see is some pretty uneven experiences. And that's worrisome because we don't, if things look better in some areas, we don't want to lose sight of, of that extreme variation. Um, because, you know, we're just going to have to lean in for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Danny Meyer, who's the restaurateur, he's on our board and um, uh, many great New York restaurants and also the founder of Shake Shack. Uh, he told Bloomberg News last week that he's not going to reopen his restaurants until there's a vaccine. Um, and he just said there's he doesn't take any joy in having half open restaurants with people sitting far from each other wearing masks and uh, and being unprofitable. He said they, they've never been profitable at 80%, let alone you know 25 or 50%. So he said they're just not going to open until there's a vaccine, which makes uh, me think that what you're saying is is right. It could be it could be a very long time uh, in, in that regard. Summer has always been an issue. I think there's another issue kind of right around the corner from it, which is how we think about back to school. I just got off a call with kind of the entire community from my son's school outside of Boston. And they talked about something which we've heard a lot of schools talk about, which is that they don't know, but they might be coming back in a normal way. They might not be coming back except online, or they might be coming back every other with half the kids going every other day uh, so that they've got fewer kids and fewer staff in the school at any given time. I would think that if that becomes a pattern for many schools in this country, then the entire way that we've fed kids in school, about 30 million kids get lunch at school free or reduced price. We're going to have to rethink that in its entirety, which is a, which is a really sobering thought. Yeah, it, it's, 
really um, challenging. And we have to remember that schools are still, or at least many of them are still in full out emergency response mode. USDA has just extended the waivers that would permit schools to continue that through the summer, which could be a really great way to shore up responses that we have available and reduce some of the pressure that food banks have been experiencing, which has been really extraordinary. And, but that also means that they don't necessarily have adequate resources or time to fully plan for the, you know, the new school year. Um, we know that a number of school districts are running um, deficits. They, in their child nutrition budgets, they've had to, you know, pay more for food. They've had to buy boxes and bags to switch to, you know, a carryout mode. They've had to, in some cases, pay hazard pay. They've, um, uh, many of them have paid for meals for parents who are picking their kids up, which makes perfect sense, um, but is not something that has um, traditionally been reimbursed under USDA. So they're going to go in with less resources, less time to plan. And then, as you say, um, a big question mark about what that scenario looks like. So if, for example, they do go with some kind of combined program where some kids are online one day and some are in class and then they switch, then you're potentially running two different kinds of food programs, right? You're wanting, running one where kids can take food at home and then others where they have to eat on site. And then all of this with uncertain staffing, if we were to have a resurgence, you know, a lot of um, school lunch personnel may in fact be in higher risk groups. So um, I think it's a very unenviable position that school administrators and local policymakers are in, in terms of trying to plan with so many unknowns. You've made several references to USDA because, you know, school meals are federally reimbursed and USDA has a, the United States Department of Agriculture, which oversees these programs, has a uh, large body of regulations that govern how they work. Um, one of the challenges in summertime has always been that there's what's called this congregate feeding rule. The kids have to eat together and that uh, doesn't work as well in summer. And of course it doesn't work at all during COVID-19 when kids can't be together. Uh, my question is, without getting too deep into the weeds, because there's lots of uh, different regulations, uh, how do you grade USDA so far? They, they have done a number of things to um, approve waivers and to extend those waivers. Uh, how have they done and is there more that they should be doing? So I think there are a number of actions that have been taken that have been pretty critical. Um, so as you mentioned, they've waived a lot of the requirements that would otherwise mean that schools would only be able to deliver foods in uh, in person on site and the same for the summer food program. And obviously that's been essential. Initially, that was only waived until the beginning of summer and they've just extended those waivers. And so that was a very good move and allows for more planning and a greater variety of responses. The other thing that um, is being accelerated is the option for states to apply for something called pandemic EBT. Not doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it's a program that would uh, allow states to provide basically the equivalent uh, in monetary value of those school meals on an electronic benefits card that could be given to families that are eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So. That's really um, compelling in a number of ways. It would allow families to purchase foods that are best suited for them. You know, it eliminates that need to potentially go pick uh, meals up. But it's an open question also about how quickly states can really stand that up. 
There's also been a question about whether there are even enough EBT cards available right now for all of the families that don't have one who aren't on SNAP or, or another program like uh, WIC that might have been uh, moving to EBT. So um, I think that's encouraging, but we really didn't have a, a full out plan for that. And so states are being asked to do that at a time when they are also under pressure with you know fewer staff, more limited resources, and a lot of other things on their plate. I think those are all good things. I think the biggest thing we need from USDA at this point is a direct ask to Congress to increase the maximum benefit for SNAP. This was done during the Great Recession, and we know from the research that was done during that time that it made an important difference in buffering food insecurity. So that's an evidence-based tool, and we really need that to happen. And people often talk about SNAP as if it's a drain, but it's anything but. And particularly in these circumstances, it's an economic stimulus. You know, those SNAP benefits get redeemed right away and they are helping to pay for cashiers and distribution warehouse workers and producers. And so, you know, it's something that can help a community heal as well as feed a family. I think I saw this just this morning, and you're probably familiar with this, that the USDA had approved a number of additional states uh, where SNAP recipients could uh, buy their food online. Um, and um, I think it's now up to 36 states where that's the case. Um, and if that's true, along with what you've been describing, uh, it seems to me that if there's you know uh, anything good that could come out of this terrible uh, COVID crisis, it might be that common sense uh, prevails and and not just during COVID, but stays in place after COVID to eliminate some of these kind of bureaucratic barriers that have existed between uh, families who need food and their ability to get the food that they're eligible for. Yes, I think you bring up another really important strategy. <clears throat> so uh, clearly uh, there was some early pilots already going on um, for online ordering, but they were in a limited number of states and USDA has acted to expand that opportunity widely. Now, that being said, you know, that doesn't mean that people can necessarily go then to their local grocery store um, website and do that right away. There are only certain large supermarkets typically that are uh, chains that are approved for that. Um, again, it takes a while to stand up that infrastructure. And then another unresolved issue is that SNAP benefits don't pay for a delivery fee, particularly now, not just being able to order online, but also being able to have SNAP ordered groceries delivered at home, particularly for high-risk individuals, is something we still need to sort out. But clearly, that's bringing the SNAP program into the 21st century, where a lot of, of other you know, private sector economic strategies were already moving. And I, I agree with you. I think hopefully this is the wave of the future. And one of the whole purposes of bringing SNAP onto an electronic benefits card many years ago, so that, you know, food stamps was no longer an actual literal thing, was to minimize stigma and to allow individuals who needed to participate in SNAP to have the same shopping experiences as everybody else. Um, could you say a little bit more about um, something that underlies this entire conversation, which is the relationship between hunger and health. I know this has been an area of interest for you. I think most people understand that it can have an intuitive level that if you're not being fed, it's going to compromise your health. But what's it, what's it look like for the, um, for the kind of typical person who's not getting sufficient nutrition? So I think you've um, 
brought us to a really important point of the conversation, which is that in the U.S., we have um, typically looked at food insecurity as a social welfare problem, and it's not. It's a public health problem, and it's a public health problem um, on par with many other things that we focused on much more intensively. We know that, for example, food insecure kids are more likely to be hospitalized, to have higher rates of asthma, to have cognitive delays, to experience behavioral issues. Food insecure teens are more likely to experience depression, um, substance abuse, and other behavioral health challenges, and more likely to experience suicidal ideation um, than even other low-income kids. It comes with a whole host of both short and long-term implications because we also know that food insecurity is associated with higher rates of chronic disease like diabetes and hypertension. Um, it's associated with higher healthcare costs. So these become things we all pay for, really, right? Absolutely, yeah. And you know, again, when we talk about SNAP or or child nutrition programs as if they're an expense line, I would argue that they're anything but. I think people um, don't necessarily understand that the experience of food insecurity, other than a, a, a short-term uncomfortable experience carries significant health ramifications, not just for that individual, but for us as a community. And so if this helps us open up that conversation about food insecurity as a public health problem, we might finally make some of the progress that we've been needing for so long. So and I always think about um, you know the, the many generous individuals who are passionate about this issue. We've seen an unprecedented number uh, at Share Our Strength and with the No Kid Hungry campaign in the last eight weeks. I know, I know that Feeding America has too. So individual donors, we've talked about so many different things here this morning. If you're a donor, um, what's the, what's, if you could direct the way your dollar was going to be spent, um, what's, where would you want it to go? And I ask this because I'm constantly find myself torn between, uh, what I know is an immediate need to get grants to schools and school districts and community organizations, which is what we've been doing now. I think uh, Share Strength has made close to, you know, almost $14 million in grants to over 500 organizations in just the last eight weeks because we've got no alternative but to make sure that kids who are relying on school meals are getting meals in other places. So we know we need to spend money on that, but we also need to spend money on what you've been talking about, which is changing public policy around SNAP and influencing public policy so that it's more uh, effective. We need to help people understand the connections between hunger and health. Personally, if you were going to, given how much you know about this issue, if you were going to donate $100 or $1,000 to an anti-hunger organization, what would you want them to be doing with your money so that it had the biggest impact? Wow. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's a wrong answer. I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's not, it's not a... Uh, I'm not, it's not a yeah. set up question. I just have no, I, you know, I have no idea. And of course, I, you know, I, I work on this and think about it constantly. And the, the answer is still not clear to me, but I thought maybe you could give us some guidance. Well, you know, again, the need is so uh, immense and so widespread that investments are, are needed across the board. So wherever people end up putting their money, I'm sure they're doing some good. I guess if I had to think about prioritizing, I go back to the fact that, that SNAP is our number one line of defense for food insecurity. And it can reach so many more people and at such a higher level than even other federal nutrition programs and the heroic efforts of food banks. And so I would put part of my dollars towards making sure that we maximize 
that program and that we also avoid the implementation of any of the ongoing proposed rules that the administration had previously put forward, which would actually narrow access to SNAP. So that would be number one. Number two is summer, summer, summer. Um, you know, as we talked about, we're on the cusp of what we know is a really tough time for families with kids. So part of that is going to be um, leveraging all of these um, waivers and programs we've been talking about, but there are going to be gaps that donors are going to need to step in. And that may be in terms of paying for meals for parents and caregivers when we are distributing summer meals because the whole family is food insecure. It's not a child only issue. And if that family is experiencing that kind of stress, everybody is going to do less well. It might look like, you know, again, backfilling some of those deficits that that school districts and other uh, partners have been experiencing so that we can try to get ready for the fall and think about what that's going to look like. And then clearly, um, food banks have done just an amazing job of, of, you know, going into full disaster mode, except, in, you know, usually we see them stepping up and helping each other out through a hurricane or a fire, uh, wildfires, but now it's, you know, it's a full out emergency in all 50 states and, ter- and all the territories. That's very difficult to sustain. And it's also meant that they can't do the things that they would normally prioritize. And that would be like putting out more fresh fruits and vegetables, allowing clients to have choice rather than just picking up an emergency box. So we need to um, figure out a way to help them build sustainable strategies, because as you know, we've been saying, this is going to go on for a while and we can't be in um, just emergency response forever. We need to build back better. And we need to also make sure that um, we can start um, doing things that really deliver the most nutritious and, and healthy options to families as possible. That's wise advice. I knew you, I knew you had it there. And <laughs> I knew I was asking the right person. Uh, Elaine, as we wrap up, tell us how, how did this become your life's work and, and why? I sometimes say to people that it was kind of an accident. Um, I had been doing other work on health policy and on other issues facing low-income families. And so it wasn't initially my professional focus. But somewhere along the way, I must have felt this passion inside because I had always in my volunteer work gravitated to this type of work. So I had driven a home-delivered meals route for four years, and I had been on the board of a food pantry. And I didn't see those uh, volunteer activities and my professional work as part and parcel of the same thing, oddly enough, until I came to Feeding America and I was drawn there because um, they were uh, at that time undertaking an enormous survey, what was then called Hunger in America of 60,000 clients around the country. And I was just very interested in understanding more about low-income family needs. And in doing that, you know, sort of my personal passions and my work came together and I began to realize that Food is uh, so foundational to the ability of low-income households and communities to do all of the other things we wish for them, you know, whether that is educate their kids or find stable work, you know, live fully. And so I came to appreciate how central it was to invest in addressing food insecurity so that those larger goals could be realized. Yeah, it's real. I mean, to me, it's always in a similar way, I think felt like kind of the, you know, the gating factor to a lot of other issues that you care about. You just can't even begin to address them if you're struggling, if you're a family struggling with hunger. Um, So it's just, it's foundational. It's got to be, it's got to be dealt with first. Well, we're really grateful for your work and the work of the Urban Institute. 
um, having facts and data and research uh, is what enables uh, Share Our Strength, what enables Feeding America, uh, so many other organizations to use their and deploy their donors' dollars in the most efficient and effective way. Um, so there's uh, many people often, you know, I think don't appreciate uh, the connection between research and uh, kind of the execution of these programs, but they're intimately tied together. And yours is known to be among the best in the in the world. So thanks for the work that you're doing, Elaine. Oh, thank you so much. And right back to you all. You know, our research needs to get off the shelf and out into the streets. And that's exactly what you all do. And we're so grateful. Well, we've been talking to Elaine Waxman, Senior Fellow in the Income and Benefits Policy Center uh, at the Urban Institute. Her expertise is food security, food insecurity, nutrition, hunger, all the things we've been talking about. Um, so thanks for listening. Uh, these issues have taken on special significance in this time of the coronavirus crisis, uh, unemployment, uh, schools uh, facing all kinds of dilemmas about how they're going to reopen schools that so many kids depend on uh, for their meals. So our work is cut out for us. Uh, we hope you'll continue to support uh, anti-hunger work in your community and nationally. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that makes this podcast possible. And our producer at District Productive in Washington, D.C., uh, Paul Woodle, uh, who is always there for us to get this message out. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.